0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know, it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. This morning, we are going to venture in. To some very deep waters. We are going to try to climb some dizzying spiritual heights this morning. The subject matter that I'm going to present to you. We began it briefly last week. We're going to get Wade right out into the depths this morning and in the weeks to come. The subject matter surrounds what is at times called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And it is, in my opinion, the most and has been for the past thousand plus years the most hotly contested doctrine in the evangelical church and because of that I want to be like you heard me in prayer I want to be hidden this morning I debated whether I should approach the platform here on my knees, literally on my knees, to convey to you the posture of my heart and my mind as I prepare to open up some truth about this doctrine to you this morning. because of the nature of the subject matter i believe it is critical that we approach it with some understanding some rules or guidelines if you will so that it can be positive and guards can be let down and The Spirit can use it in His way. And the first one of those guidelines would be this. We must not approach this subject in a spirit of controversy. To do so, I believe just flies in the face of the very essence of the doctrine itself. Secondly, what we must do is we must understand that we will not fully understand. That is so critical right there. If we approach this doctrine, a doctrine that includes the election of God, His choice to select and save, the predestination of God, His predetermination of destiny, The effectual call of God. God calling a person in the midst of their deadness in sin and so revealing the truth of Christ and His grace that it becomes effectual to accomplish the call for which it was sent. All of those things are included in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So we must approach it with an understanding of what we are dealing with here is the very mind of God. We are trying to bring to an infinite subject a finite mind and trying to actually think the very thoughts of the eternal decrees of God. I'm hoping that you see the difficulty just in that statement. If we come to the subject and we have decided ahead of time in our mind that if we can't understand it, we will not believe it, then you're going to be doomed to failure. God cannot be hemmed in if we are talking about grappling with God Himself, the very thoughts of God and trying to think the very thoughts of the infinite God then we must understand that as Scripture says, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. So when we come to the subject, the critical thing is not how much of it we can understand. The critical thing is what does the Word of God say about the subject? So do not allow your belief to stop you at the boundary of your comprehension. You hear that? Don't let your belief stop you at the boundary of your comprehension. God is bigger, His ways are higher, His thoughts are deeper. Number three, how we must come is we must come in reverent awe. We're going to try to think the thoughts of God. And when He gives us insight, the result should be to rejoice and glory over the truth that He is teaching us the truth about the salvation of a soul. And then finally, we need to put this guideline in place that what we must do, always true in the interpretation of Scripture, and if this is some of the highest and grandest, some of the deepest truths in scripture that we can grapple with then that principle <clears throat> most certainly should, should be first and foremost and it's this we must let scripture define scripture and we do that first of all by the immediate text the context within which it is said and then by the larger context of scripture So we're going to do that this morning. So let me begin. I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, 28, 29, and 30. Last Sunday, we walked through verse 28 of Romans 8. I'm going to read that as a reminder and a setup for verse 29 and 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30. He called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So I believe the way that we need to approach this is keeping the context in view, and the pretext for Romans 8, 29, and 30 is the last statement of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where Paul writes, for those who are called according to his purpose. He's writing there about those who are saved, those whom God will save, who are called according to the purpose of God, God's purpose in saving an individual. And then what he does in verses 29 and 30 is he expounds upon that statement. What he is going to do in verses 29 and 30 is that he is going to show us what the purposes of God are in the salvation process. He's going to let us into the mind of God related to the salvation of a soul. So what we must do, if we're going to properly keep this in context so that we can understand it, is that we must look at the five words in Romans 8, 29, and 30. The five words are God foreknew, God predestined, God called, God justified, and God glorified. We must look at those five words based upon the understanding that they are the purposes of God in respect to salvation. That's the pretext. That's what sets up the text. That's the reason that Paul is going to explain what he says in 29 and 30, because he has just pointed to the purposes of God in salvation. So here comes the expansion on what those are. And what we know, I mentioned this briefly last week, the purposes of God, how sure are the purposes of God? They are as sure as God. That's the reality. As sure and as unmovable and as unchangeable and as guaranteed and as perfect and as reliable as God is, therefore His purposes are the same because His purposes flow right out of His nature. So as we look at what the purposes of God are related to salvation, understand that they are just that. They are His determined purposes. So we need to bring that to the table as we begin to look at these five words, and we come now to Romans eight twenty nine, And what does Paul say is the beginning of the outworking of the purposes of God in salvation. He says, For those whom God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. We're going to zero in this morning on the first word, and that is those whom God foreknew. Those whom God foreknew. What does that term mean? The foreknowledge of God. When we use the term foreknowledge, I'm not sure that it's a common word, but we can hear the vernacular there, and foreknowledge is to know something before. It's to know something that's going to happen or about something that's going to happen before it happens. And when we use that related to ourselves or to each other, that description makes perfect sense. In fact, there are two uses in the New Testament where this very word right here in the Greek is used related to mankind. And in both of those uses, it means just that. Something that is known ahead of time. A cognitive understanding, an intellectual grasp of something that's going to happen ahead of time but what we're talking about here is we're talking about not the foreknowledge of man we're talking about the foreknowledge of god so the question that we need to bring to the table is this what does the bible say about the foreknowledge of god and what we have in the new testament is five uses of the foreknowledge of god this precise word used here in romans 8:29 One time used here in the 29th verse of Romans and four other places in Scripture in the New Testament where it is said that God foreknows something. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Word of God and let the Word of God shed light on the Word of God. What is commonly understood about the doctrine of the foreknowledge of God by many is this. It is simply, as I was referring to mankind, it is simply omniscience. It is God's awareness of what is going to happen in the future. So that that is applied to this text and the interpretation of it goes like this that because God is omniscient, what He does in His foreknowledge, what He is able to do, is He looks into the future. This is before the foundation of the world. This is before He said, let there be light. He looks at all of humanity, and He sees the individuals in humanity that are going to choose His Son. That are going to put their faith in His Son. And He sees that choice, before the foundation of the world. And so what He does is that having foreknown that they would do that, He predestines them to be conformed to the image of His Son. So, with that in view, let's look and see, first of all, at these four other uses of foreknowledge and put that interpretation to the test and see if that squares with the other uses of God's foreknowledge in the New Testament. First of all, let's go to Acts chapter 2, 23. Acts chapter 2, 23. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to be looking up these verses Here is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost to a large group of people. This is the group of people, many of whom had been a part of what happened in Jerusalem there with the crucifixion of Jesus, who had been a part of the crowd that cried out, Crucify Him! Who had put the pressure on Pontius Pilate and the Romans so that they could secure His death. And so what Peter preaches in Acts 2.32 is he is preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and he says this in the 23rd verse, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So let's apply that understanding to see if That is the kind of foreknowledge being referred to here. Is Peter saying that what God did is that God looked into the future from before creation began and He saw what would happen. He saw that His Son would come born of a virgin, would live a perfect life, and that there would be wicked men who would hate Him and they would hatefully grab Him, punish Him, nail Him to a tree, and crucify Him unto death. That would be an understanding of God's omniscient knowledge, His precognition of what was going to happen to His Son. Is that what Peter is saying here? It cannot be. In my view, it cannot be what Peter is saying because look at it again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The point Peter is making here, he says at the end of the verse, listen, you called for His crucifixion. You Pushed Pilate into a corner so that he eventually caved and sentenced Christ to brutal flogging and death. But I want you to know something it wasn't your hands that accomplished it, it was actually the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that brought it about. God the Father is the One who from eternity past determined, definitely planned, purposed, made a choice. That's foreknowledge. Made the choice that what He was going to do is send His Son, Jesus Christ, to earth for the very expressed purpose of living a sinless life, taking on humanity's sin, and then willingly accomplishing His own death That's why it says in Isaiah that it was the Father's will who that crushed the Son. It was the Holy Father that crushed, that nailed the spikes into the hands, that put to death His Holy Son. That is what Paul is saying to the crowd here. Yes, you killed Him. And you did it in sin. And you did it by forcing wicked men to call for His death. But understand this, it was the determined plan of the Father from all eternity to accomplish that. You were tools in the hands of the Father to accomplish His eternal purpose, which was to kill the Holy Son. So, foreknowledge here is not God just seeing what somebody else was going to do, what wicked men were going to do. The whole thrust of what Paul is saying here is God made a choice. God made a decision. Ere the world began, ere sin was committed, that His Son was going to be the Lamb. This is the work of God. This is the decision of God. This is the determined action of God. A choice He made. Not a reaction to the choices that man made. God is the actor. Next verse, Romans 11, 1 and 2. Here, what Paul is doing in this chapter is that he is defending the doctrine of election that we are working through here. He spends chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 defending that doctrine. He comes to chapter 11 talking about the Jews, talking about Jews who had rebelled, talking about God's choice of the Jews and how did that choice work itself out if God chose them by His foreknowledge from before the foundation of the world, how does that work itself out? And Paul asks the question in Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? You see what Paul is asking here? Have the purposes of God come to naught? If God had chosen a people, the Jews, His select, unique people, and decided to set His love upon them, has God rejected them? And then what Paul does is amazing. He writes himself into the story to prove his point. By no means, he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. Whom He decided upon ahead of time to choose. He says, God didn't reject them. Look, I'm an example. Look at me. He didn't reject me, Paul says. And then think about the reality of who is writing that. If there is ever a Jew that God should have rejected, here's the guy... Here's the murderer. Here's the one that is the number one enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ that is seeking vehemently to stamp out His program and His people. And He is on the way, on the road to Damascus to do that. And the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, resurrected, ascended into heaven, shows back up. And in the middle of the day, he outshines the sun, blinds Paul, knocks him to the ground, and Paul is so overwhelmed. He knows in that moment that he knows that he knows that he is in the presence of the Almighty God because he says to him, Who are you, Lord? Capital L. He knows it's God. He just doesn't understand this God. who would, I thought I knew this God. Who are you? And then Jesus says, "I am Jesus." You see, what happened in that moment is that the Lord Jesus Christ stepped into a rebellious, hateful, heart at enmity with God, and he flooded that heart with His revelation, His glory, His light. He came to a heart dead in sin. And He called that heart based upon His foreknowledge of Paul, His choice in the past that He was going to elect Him, that He was going to Choose him and predetermine his destiny. And he stepped in and he called Paul. He showed himself to Paul in a glorious moment that wiped away every doubt that birth loved where there had been enmity. I ask you, I ask you, was that an irresistible moment for Paul? course it was what other choice was there did he make the choice yes but how could he make the choice it's because jesus in all of his glory broke through a broken dead heart in revelation and woke it up so that it could see and make the choice That's the man that is writing and says, God didn't reject His people. And why didn't He reject them? Because it was people that He foreknew. People that He had chosen and He never goes back on His choice. He always accomplishes His choice. It's His purpose. It's grounded to His eternally determined purposes, the called according to His purpose. So if He's purposed it, He is going to carry it through. It's all about God. This use of foreknowledge is all about God, not about man. Not something God sees that man is going to do. And so He makes a decision secondary, passively, based upon what man does. No, this is all the work of God. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. So we've looked at a couple from Paul. Let's look at a couple from Peter. The last two uses of this word in the New Testament come from the pen of Peter. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter is writing to Christians scattered all throughout a region. Here's what he says. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He says to these scattered elect, to those who are elect exiles, He says to them, there are certain things that are true of you because you are Christians. And here is one thing that is true of you. God elected you. Here's another thing that's true of you. He foreknew you from before creation began. He set His decision upon you. He chose you. And so he expounds upon that at the end saying, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Look, he's saying grace and peace were poured out upon you. Grace and peace are something that God does. It's the very grace and peace of God that motivates him in his foreknowledge, in his choice of us. He is saying, God did that for you before the foundation of the world. You see again, this use of foreknowledge is all about something God has done. And Peter is trying to shore up believers who are going through a difficult time by telling them, listen, your salvation is grounded in the purposes of God. The foreordained purposes of God, the predetermined election of God that's how sure your salvation is that's where it comes from and then first 1 peter 120 toward the end of this chapter peter is talking here about how a person is saved and in verse 19 of chapter 1 he says They're saved with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. That Jesus Christ is God's sacrificial lamb. The lamb that God provided to pay for the sins of humanity. Then he says this in verse 20. He, Jesus, was foreknown. There's the word. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So, let's apply that understanding of foreknowledge to this. Could it possibly mean God's cognitive awareness, His intellectual understanding before it happened that He would send Jesus to the earth and that Jesus would get here and as He lived a holy life and as He performed the mighty exploits of God that people would get jealous and angry at Him and that they would in sin grab him and persecute him and flog him and eventually in their evil act take him to the cross is that what made Jesus the lamb of god that's the question here because it's based upon the foreknowledge of god is that what foreknowledge means that they that god saw what the men would do to jesus therefore What happened through that action was that Jesus became the Lamb of God that cannot be the meaning here. The whole point Peter is making is that this is something God did before the foundation of the world. God chose that His Son, Jesus Christ, was going to be His Lamb that He was going to send expressly with the predetermined purpose of going to the cross and accomplishing His own death. And that the Father was going to work that plan forward. He was going to orchestrate the events of the unfolding of that plan and secure His own Son's death. That's the point He's making here. So foreordination... For ordination is all of God. It's not God seeing what a man will do or a woman will do and then passively, secondarily doing something based upon what they would do. This is all about. The purposes of God, what God and God alone does. That's the context of Romans 8:29, and that is the context of every one of these four other uses of the foreknowledge of God. Let's go wider now. Let's broaden the context to the Old Testament. See, I think this will only just give one verse here. I think this will make sense if you've been a student of the Word at all. Old Testament obviously is not written in the Greek. It's not the same word used here, but the idea of God knowing. Foreknowledge, the idea of God knowing. And as you look at the concept of God knowing people in the Old Testament... Here's what that knowledge is about. It's not about him knowing omnisciently, intellectually, what they are going to do in the future. The context in the Old Testament of the knowledge of God is what? It's about relationship. When God says, I know you, He's talking about a relational connection. Let me just give you one of the primary verses in the Old Testament that would refer to that. Amos chapter 3, verse 2. This is the prophet Amos. God using the prophet to speak about God knowing the Jews, the chosen people of Israel. And he says through Amos to the Jews, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Same idea here. The knowledge of God of people. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You see, God is saying to them, what is He saying? You only have I omnisciently known what you would do. We know that can't be true, right? God knows about what everybody is going to do. He doesn't just know about what some are going to do. He knows omnisciently about every action of every person of all time. So why does He say here, you only have I known of all the families of the earth? He says it, Because what he means there, the only thing it can mean is that God is talking about a special, unique relationship he has with the Jews, with those people. This is his chosen people, the one that he is, the ones that he has foreknown throughout all of eternity past. And in that foreknowledge, the ones that he chose to be his special people, that he would set his love upon them. That's what it means that God chooses to set his love upon specific people. Let me give you one more verse in the New Testament from the from the lips of Jesus himself to explain this idea of knowing referring to relationship. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, writing about the great final day of judgment and those who are standing before Him that had never accepted Him. And He's judging them. And He says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. Could that possibly convey the idea, I never had an omniscient understanding of what you were going to do in life. I cannot mean that. He's omniscient. He knows exactly what everybody's going to do all the time. So what the idea of Him knowing them means here is that He is saying, I never had a personal relationship with you. I never chose you. you have. N- I never set my love upon you. My foreknowledge of you. My choice of you. Was never there. I never knew you. So we come then back so sort we've of looked at the four uses other than Romans 8:29 of the concept of God's foreknowledge in the New Testament we've looked at the broader understanding of God knowing people in the Old Testament and how that meant a knowledge of a person now we come back to Romans 8:29 and let me just close here with a few comments about the proper understanding of the word for new." First of all, how could Romans 8.29 refer to God's omniscient understanding of what a person would do before they do it, thereby making a decision to act because he knew what they would do. You see, in Romans 8.29, Paul is talking about a specific group of people. Remember again, the last phrase of Romans 8.28, those who have been called according to his purpose. That is not the entire human race, is it? It's only believers. It's only Christians. That's who he's talking about. Those people that he has specifically called according to his purpose. There's two groups of people on the planet. There's those who have been called according to the purposes of God and those who have not. And those that Paul is writing about are those who have been called according to the purposes of God. And what does he say about them? It is those that God foreknew. It is that specific group of people that God foreknew. So how could it mean that God just has omniscient knowledge of what they would do in the future because who does He have omniscient knowledge of and what they will do? How many? All people. And yet, right here in Romans 8.29 He is saying specifically this is only true of those I have called. So it cannot Mean it cannot mean an omniscient understanding of what a person will do because he knows that about every person. Secondly, what has God said to know here? Does He know what a person will do, or the person? It's clearly the person. It doesn't say God knew what action a person would take. It says, for those who have been called according to His purpose, those He foreknew. Those people He foreknew. This is talking about a relationship. It's not talking about a cognitive understanding of an action. It's a relational statement. Number three. If foreknowledge means that God looks into the future and sees what a person will do and therefore then makes His decision based upon what that person is going to do. If He looks and sees, okay, everybody that puts their faith in My Son, those are the ones I'm going to save. From eternity past, I look into the future and I see Andy, God says, and I see that Andy is going to put his faith in my son and Ty is going to put his faith in my son. I see that and so I make a decision based upon that. Then let me ask you a question. Then where does faith issue from? If it's the faith that God is seeing, where does that faith come from? And the biblical treatment on that is this. Faith is the gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. For you have been saved by grace through faith and that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. You see, there is nothing that we can boast about. There is nothing that we can say we merit. There is nothing in us Inherently good, and there's no action inherently worthy of salvation. I could give you two scriptures off the top of my head that prove that. Number one, there's nothing inherently good in us that merits salvation. Romans chapter 3, verses 20 or 10, no, 10, I think it's 10 and 11. Let me just look it up. Yeah, 10 and 11. None is righteous, no, not one. How many unrighteous? No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, there is nothing in any person that is an action that would merit God's salvation, absolutely nothing can do that. We are depraved. We are sinners. We are in enmity with God. So, what's at stake here? This is, this is huge to me. What's at stake here is that if we follow the interpretation that what Romans 8.29 is saying is that God in His omniscience looks and sees every human that's going to accept His Son and then because they're going to do that, because of their action he then acts and moves toward them to save them, then what we are doing is we are making the first cause of our salvation us. And what we are doing in that is we are taking the glory away from God. And God is the one who deserves all the glory because Grace is free. Grace is unmerited. There is nothing we can do not of works lest any man should boast. You see what's at stake here is the glory of God. So for all of those reasons, I cannot, line up with an understanding that the foreknowledge of God means He simply knows what a person does and secondarily acts upon their first action. I know that's not how God saved me because I was wretched and broken and dead. How could I dead in my sin decide anything for God? How could I blind see any truth? How could I, deaf to spiritual things, understand anything about the truth of salvation? I couldn't until God, until God, God chose me in his foreknowledge before the foundation of the world and then what he did is he predestined he determined that he was going to move toward me in a saving purpose and then that was throughout all of eternity past and then in a moment of time in history he stepped down into my life and he did to me what he did to Paul and what he did to everybody else that has been saved he revealed the truth of Jesus Christ to them in such a way that that truth became irresistible now let me just ask you, if you're saved, if you're saved, and you know that you're saved, was not the truth of Christ irresistible to you? The answer has to be yes. It accomplished what God showed it to you for. It achieved your salvation. That's all that that means. You see it, you understand it, and it's so winsome that it accomplishes that for which it's set. so the foreknowledge of god means that from eternity past god in and of himself not owing the decision to any one but himself determined he foreknew he chose to elect individuals to salvation and then he followed that election with predestination and then a effectual call and then justification and will carry it all the way through to glorification